The Rappaport Diamond Podcast is brought to you by Rappaport Academy, your e-learning course for successful diamond trading. Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. I'm your host, David Ehrlich, and can you believe we're in December again already? Of course, that's going to give us a chance to look back at the rest of 2018, see what key stories influenced the diamond market, and take a look ahead into 2019, where our news team will tell us what they think is coming. Helping us to navigate through 2018, we have in studio Sonia, Avi, and Joshua from the Rappaport News Team. And by the way of introduction, I would like you to tell me what was your favorite story of 2018, Sonia? Well, my favorite story had to involve a French queen. I mean, Austrian by birth, but um, Marie Antoinette, the um, pearl and diamond pendant that she is said to have um, to have owned was sold at Sotheby's Geneva in November. So it's quite a recent story, and it was evaluated at one to two million dollars. Ended up selling for thirty-six million, and the sale was quite phenomenal. When you see the bidding, the excitement in the room, um, within twenty minutes, that was it. It was sold. And it's a, it's a beautiful piece of jewelry, but also I think the, the historical connection is really exciting. And it's nice to see Marie Antoinette being reevaluated as non evil queen that she wasn't, by the way, but that's for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't wait to do the Rappaport History Podcast with you, Sonia. <laughs> Thanks, Davey. <laughs> so, and Avi, senior analyst, what have you found most fascinating in 2018? Thanks, David. And, and I guess Happy New Year, we can say. And, um, it's uh, it's amazing how quickly the year has flown and how much we've covered on uh, on diamonds.net um and there were some fascinating stories that we covered but one that made me smile Joshua actually picked it up in the uh, in the GIA's um gems and gemology um publication where the GIA in their melee testing service where they they test goods for synthetics they found a, a parcel of synthetics with just one natural diamond in it, which was quite a turn of events. And what made me smile in the in the story was um, one of our readers, who's apparently a proponent of the lab-grown industry, wrote a comment on the story and said, you know, how dare the natural diamond industry taint a parcel of, of synthetic stones like that, <laughs> which which kind of made me smile and, and think, wow, we, we really are living in different times with new challenges out there. New challenges indeed, and I'm sure we will find more challenges in 2019. But before we get there, Joshua, news reporter for Rappaport, what was your favorite story to report on this year? Hi, David. I'm, uh, I'm also going to choose something from the Gems and Gemology Journal. I always get a bit of a excitement every quarter when the uh, email comes in from the GIA saying that Gems and Gemology, the new issue is in. Because if you turn to the end, uh, you'll find a section called Lab Notes which has a whole range of stories of weird and wonderful things that GIA gemologists have found when they received diamonds, or as is often the case, not diamonds, for analysis and for grading when people send them in. And this one I'm picking was uh, a, um, I think, 1.38 carat green diamond, although in fact it was uh, very unusual. They noticed there was a bit of a crack down the middle, and when they looked at it carefully, there was some unusual uh, substance along this crack, and it transpired that during the polishing process, the manufacturer had broken the diamond in two and glued it together. Um, and at some later stage, it was uh, ended up with the GIA. Um, they couldn't grade it because it didn't meet their 
requirements for a diamond that can get a grading certificate. But uh, if anyone's familiar with uh, UK comedy, the show Only Fools and Horses, there's a character there called Del Boy who could very well have done something exactly like this, broken a diamond in two and thought, I'll just glue it together and see if I can get away with it. Um, and it seems possibly that they did. Um, but uh, someone who bought it is not going to be very happy. And the GIA cracked the case. <laughs> they did indeed, yeah. What did they yeah. glue it back together with? It was a gripping story. Um, they, <laughs> they, um, so they, the GIA says it was an unknown adhesive or an unidentifiable adhesive, probably super glue. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep that in mind if it ever happens to me. But, you know, let's turn our attention to some more serious stuff. Uh, it was an interesting year for the industry, and it seemed to get off to a good start after the 2017 holiday season. But we've learned to expect the unexpected in the diamond industry. And, you know, it looks like there were a number of stories and trends that really put the break on things. So, Avi, maybe you could start us off telling us why you think that there's more caution going into 2019 than there was, you know, relatively enthusiasm going into 2018. Yeah, the, I think the year did start off with quite a, a positive um, feeling about the market. And I think that was really as a result of a positive um, holiday season, both in the US and in China. There was really a good feeling about um, Christmas sales and sales going into the Chinese New Year. And that showed in the first half of the year where there was a positive sort of feeling amongst the, in the trade with um, a lot of restocking amongst retailers and, and that filtered through to good activity in the dealer market. And that kind of changed in, in the second half. In a way, it was a, a year of two halves as we, we often, well, it is a year of two halves or four <laughs> quarters, but, <laughs> but there was a distinct atmosphere in the first half of the year that changed in the second half of the year. And um, that's largely, I think, as a result of um, sort of macroeconomic um, developments. There was a slowdown in China as the trade war between the United States and China sort of gathered steam, there was a much more cautious sort of atmosphere and, and uncertainty over how this tariff war and these tensions would affect the market, in, particularly in China. And at the same time, there were, there were other factors such as um, currencies that devalued in, in China and in India, and that affected the market in, in a significant way. So those issues still haven't been resolved, and therefore... There's a bit more uncertainty about um, those emerging markets going into 2019. Joshua, why would a trade war between China and the U.S., which are countries that do not trade an enormous amount of jewelry between each other, why would that have an impact on the jewelry industry and and on the, the general atmosphere? That's an interesting question because I wrote a piece for Diamonds.net in April. Uh, the headline was something on the lines of uh, U.S.-China trade war shouldn't hurt diamonds. And I realized a few months after that, that I had approached it from completely the wrong uh, perspective. Because it's true that the um, the direct impact of the tariff war on diamonds and jewellery was minimal because they're relatively small industries in terms of what quantity of goods is traded between the US and China compared with, say, the car industry or, or, or any other industry. But the real impact that only came a little bit later was actually from, as Avi mentioned, was from the currency. So actually the indirect impact of the trade war on the diamond industry has been very significant because of that currency is, uh, issue. The, the Chinese yuan has fallen about, I think, 5% this year, maybe Abby can correct me, and uh, that has made it 
difficult for many people. It's, it's impacted consumer demand in China, uh, particularly Chinese people going to Hong Kong to buy diamonds, no longer have as much spending power as they had when the Chinese currency was stronger. And uh, it's had a knock-on effect in, in many areas. It's also harder for wholesale diamond dealers in Hong Kong. In the end, it has had quite a significant impact. So, Sonia, we've seen some consumer uh, you know, confidence being shaken in China. How does that relate to China? Does it relate also into the United States? Do we see some similar consumer issues in the U.S.? I mean, there are two things. I think some of the, the people we speak to are still optimistic and still holding by Joshua's view from April that the trade won't be affected, but it's more about the economy and your disposable income. And um, I was reading this article of um, an interview with Jack Ma of Alibaba, who said that he thinks that the actual trade war is going to have an effect for 20 years because, you know, it's not easy to revert tariffs. And so we're not talking about just something that happens this year between Trump and uh, the Chinese government. It, it will have an impact on the, on the American consumers for sure. And I think that's when we will see actually if, um, you know, we already saw, I think, in, in Tiffany's, I think Tiffany's results that we, last month, was it end of November? They already said that, you know, it has to, is connected to the Chinese tourist uh, spending. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, I think in the high end, you'll, you're going to see it more. They also said that prices of luxury goods in Shanghai is much higher because of the, you know, like the big brands that are in, in cities like Shanghai, where people are used to spend quite a lot on luxury goods, I think is going to be affected. And the American market, it's not maybe something that's going to happen 2019, but it could be 2020 or as it develops, I think that's, uh, and I think, you know, I think Jack Ma has, uh, has a point, actually. So, I mean, beyond just China and the U.S., there have been other issues that have put some damper on the on the outlook in the industry. And Avi, I know you look into India not infrequently. Maybe you could elaborate on what's going on there. Yeah, for sure. Um, India has a, a major impact on the trade. It's the biggest manufacturing center and it's got a sizable consumer market as well. Um, one of the biggest stories that we covered in 2018 was an alleged $2 billion fraud of an Indian bank by Nirav Modi and Gitanjali Gems, which which are two very well-known jewelers in India. And that had a major impact on the attitude that banks in India have towards the diamond and jewelry trade, that um, they took on a much more cautious approach. And, um, and generally, there was a, a tightening of credit to the Indian diamond and jewelry trade. And along with the depreciation of the rupee, which fell by about um, 13% in 2018, um, had, a, had a major impact on the sentiment and mood in the market. So we've seen certain items um, that the Indian um, market specializes in, such as very small diamonds, has been quite weak this year, which has had a ripple effect on the sentiment in the industry, and particularly moving into 2019. In the latest research report, you actually did cover this slowdown in the Meli market, right, the, the small stones that you were talking about. What do you think motivated the troubles in that market? We outlined a number of factors that have influenced the market for small diamonds in 2018. The first was that Indian um, caution that we mentioned. Secondly, that the year started off with a lot of inventory that was available of those smaller goods. Last year, in 2017, there was three new mines that came on stream, and this brought a a peak in production um, at um, the highest level of global rough diamond production since 2008. And the question was whether the market could absorb all these goods. And what we saw, um, in my opinion, 
in the last year that it didn't actually have the demand to absorb all those goods. So there was an an aspect or an element of oversupply. And the third um, element that we we looked at was the effect of um, synthetic diamonds, lab-grown diamonds, gaining greater interest and popularity in the market, which we're seeing a bit more and we'll probably talk about a bit more in our next discussion, that um, they've become more popular in 2018. And then finally, we look at technology and how that's affected the market for melee as um, the use of technology in jewelry design has made demand much more precise and specific for these goods. And so there's a narrower demand for for small diamonds and uh, it's changed the way the market is dealing in these goods. Um, So there's certain categories within the small diamonds that are are stronger, but there's a larger portion of goods that are being rejected and not um, necessarily used in uh, in jewellery design these days. I I will just add one thing as to, uh, you know, getting back to why I think we're going into the new year with a bit more caution is that just to reiterate um, Joshua's point that it really is coming from the consumer side. There's a certain amount of uncertainty about consumer demand in China and, and India in particular. But also we, we've had a very volatile um, final month of the year in the stock markets in the U.S. as well. I think there's a question of whether we'll have that same sort of confidence in, in consumer spending as we did in 2018. So that's something just we, we're looking out for. This podcast would not have been possible without the support of Rappaport Academy. Rappaport Academy launched just a few months ago, giving students the opportunity to learn all they need to know about the diamond industry. It's kind of like this podcast. But if the Rappaport Diamond Podcast has left you with a thirst for more knowledge about the diamond industry, go to rappaportacademy.com and sign up for the Fundamentals of Diamond Trading, your e-learning course for successful diamond trading. So you just mentioned, Avi, that one of the big factors that we're looking at in the Melly slowdown is synthetic diamonds uh, and the increase of synthetics in the marketplace. And Joshua, I know you pulled uh, a list of the top, what was it, the top 100 stories of uh, 2018 and that without really any surprise, we saw that, what was it, four of the top five were about synthetics? At least, yeah. So why do you think that is? Obviously, people read articles about uh, things that bother them and things that keep them up at night. And I think if you're a diamond dealer, then one of your biggest fears is finding an undisclosed synthetic diamond in your inventory or um, finding out that you've bought a diamond and you didn't know what it was or you've sold someone a diamond and it turned out to be um, a missed sale. And anything about synthetic diamonds has always been our, in our list of the top stories of, uh, that anyone's reading in any year in recent years. But this year in particular, the synthetics market has really taken off. Um, we saw in May, we saw that um, we saw De Beers launch of its Lightbox brand of fashion jewelry using lab-grown diamonds. Um, and then a couple of months later, the, um, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission in the US, put out their new guidelines for the jewelry industry for how to communicate to consumers. And they famously changed their definition of diamond to include lab-grown diamonds, so to remove the word natural, and that got a lot of people um, very worried. And that was, by a long way, our top story of the, uh, our most read story of the year was uh, the first story on that. So that's really the uh, the simple answer is that it's uh, it's what everyone's worrying about at the moment. And uh, it seems that every month there's another another story that in- that gives people more reason to be concerned about the impact of lab-grown diamonds on the wider industry. 
So, Sonia, this light box thing, it sounds interesting, and I know that we've paid some attention to it. Have you seen any of the jewelry that's come out from it? Anything about the new light box product line? What's very interesting is when we uh, we first spoke or we first heard of Lightbox, it was supposed to be this fashion jewelry for uh, young girls, you know, a gift that you give to your 15-year-old or a graduation party or something, you know, not forever. That was the big thing. That's the, that's the big line. And, um, you know, earrings, little um, pendants, things like this. And then... Um, I think it was a few weeks ago, suddenly uh, I think Joshua wrote about it. The lines is expanding into rings and bracelets. And I think rings, you know, they will sell. It's not engagement rings. Heaven forbid that Lightbox would sell engagement rings, but they're going to do stacking rings, which actually is very popular with millennials as well as engagement rings. So, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing what they look like. Uh, first and then also to see who actually buys them and who is embracing and I'm, I'm just wondering if it's just people have said the beers is cannibalizing their brand they're creating a big threat on the market they're going to make lab-grown diamonds acceptable not just for what they call fashion jewelry also i think at 800 dollars it's not exactly you know fashion jewelry but that's another debate that one yeah i think that's that's very interesting and it's, you know they, i think they made lab-grown diamond jewelry acceptable this year in a way that we hadn't seen before. Um, Sotheby's has just sold a lab-grown ring at one of these auctions for charity. Suddenly you have celebrities wearing lab-grown diamonds they didn't use to. So yeah, I think that's that's what's interesting. It's like, how did the market actually react to it? And is it going to overtake the first intention of lab-grown, of the beer, sorry, to actually go against the lab-grown manufacturers by lowering the price, but as it made it more mainstream and more acceptable. And also their marketing is very sleek, very nice. I can't wait for these stacking rings that are no engagement rings to happier. You know, I think that's really interesting that they started with their sort of diminishing lab-grown diamonds as not forever. And it seems like from a marketing standpoint, that's a pretty challenging place to begin. And this newer sort of more all-encompassing uh, marketing strategy that they have, it seems like a little bit of a threat to the uh, diamond industry. What do you think, Avi? What does this change in marketing strategy bode for the industry at large? Well, if we compare the um, De Beers uh, marketing for Lightbox and their marketing for their Forever Mark brand, there's a distinct difference in the demographic of women that they're targeting and the overall sort of atmosphere of the advertising is much more fun and light and um, and appealing, I think. Their Forever Mark campaign, which targets um, the more sort of established self-purchasing um, women, has a bit more sophistication about it. Yeah, it's got sort of that more sort of older luxury feel about it that uh, that I think many in the industry are trying to get away from, in a way. And Lightbox kind of, it seems a lot more fun. But um, putting it into the context of what happened this year, really it was, I, th- I think 2018, people remember it as the year that Lab Grown Diamonds sort of made their mark and became a, a reality for the trade. And it's got this wider acceptance. I think a lot of people are upset with the beers for anything else except that they've sort of given this message that it's okay to deal in, in lab-grown diamonds, which before it was very much a taboo. And so you're seeing a lot more people sort of embracing the product. I'd like to add something actually to what um, Evie says about marketing and targeting because Forever Mark um, is using the self-purchasing, empowered women, you know, business women, artists, influencers in their I would say some of them early 20s to early 30s. And it feels a bit like Cosmopolitan, you know, when Cosmopolitan 
we're talking about cosmopolitan, was targeting women of that age group, 20 to 30. Actually, the people who were reading Cosmopolitan were 13-year-old who didn't have the purchasing power. So I'm thinking also the people that they're targeting might, you know, might be more attracted to light books. They might have not this uh, forever mark jewelry, might not appeal actually maybe to these people and more. And they, they might find it this fun, attractive colors that they use for light books. So this, you know, pink and blue is, is fun as a diamond if you want to have something. So yeah. Well, it, I would say that Forever Mark is more like a, a Facebook platform, whereas uh, <laughs> Lightbox light is more an Instagram. Um, and, 100%. You know, and, uh, and so actually what I think might be interesting is that, you know, I always felt that the industry is almost missing a beat in not um, using the lab-grown space as a stepping stone to your first diamond purchase. So so maybe at some point there'll be a marketing um you know, message that's what, you know, you buy a light box um, first and then then you move on to the real thing. The beer uh, said categorically that, that they weren't trying to do that because they wanted to see them as being very... They also they said they wouldn't very, do any rings. If there was a... If they also said they wouldn't do So let's have this conversation in six months. <laughs> if if there were a De Beers um, public relations officer in the room, I think he would say that... Um, I mean, Lightbox hasn't changed its marketing strategy, so it's it's the same. The marketing is the same as it was when they started. What was it? Eight months ago or something, and uh, and they they really they are attempting to to present it as a very a very separate product and a very separate department from everything else that the De Beers Group does. As if you look at the the Lightbox website, you can do this because you've on Google if you type site colon URL. And then a word, you can see whether that word comes up anywhere on their website. And the word De Beers doesn't come up anywhere on the Lightbox website. So they're obviously allowing people to Google it and see their, their stories on Diamonds.net saying that it's a De Beers product. But um, if you don't but, know Lightbox is De Beers, you must have been sleeping since <laughs> May 2018, I, I think. But, <laughs> um, but they, they, I mean, that's, that's true in the industry, but if you're just a you know consumer out shopping, I don't know if it's that easy. It's, I don't know if you actually that's do. That's a fair do. point. It's a true point. And, uh, that's a very they, fair they, point. They, they, for the holiday season, they had a pop-up store in New York where where there was no mention of the beers. It was just Lightbox. And so the average um, you know commuter on his way to work um, stopped by that store and just saw this um, fun very appealing pop-up store that I think, you know, the average person would be attracted to. And then, someone on, on Twitter was saying that um, he went to this pop-up store in New York and they, the representatives there introduced themselves as, we're from a manufacturing company in the UK, uh, which is obviously a very different <laughs> a, a very different introduction line from um, we're the famous De Beers, the much, the much hated largest uh, diamond miner in history. It's not incorrect. <laughs> it's just not a full truth. <laughs> and it's it's funny that they've. That it's they've, not it's not full disclosure of this one, huh? No, well, you know, it, disclosure is another thing that they've been talking about in 2018. But you know, it's it's funny. It almost feels like it's cannibalizing a, a one of the when we talk about cannibalizing the industry or their own their own business that this idea that jewelry should be fun and lighthearted and not you know tied to these old ideas of luxury and wealth that, I mean, in many cases, these are ideas that hold some degree of negative connotation for, for millennials and for young people. It's interesting that they've decided to use it for this product and not for their their primary line of natural diamonds. But uh, it's not only in the industry that synthetics have been getting more 
recognition, more attention. Uh, Joshua, you actually covered the FTC's announcement about synthetic diamonds. Could you fill us in on what they said? They um, published over the summer a uh, the FTC a, a um, well a very very long document, um, a couple of very long documents. Their new guidelines. So that's as we said before, that's their um, instructions to the trade on how to communicate consumer products to consumers. And alongside that, they published a 160-page commentary with footnotes, which was fun to get through. And in it, they had they had many things. They made some large and small changes to how you are allowed to refer to lab-grown diamonds, as well as other things, a lot of changes to, to rules for metal and all sorts of things. There was a big debate about um, whether it's allowed to refer to lab-grown diamonds as cultured diamonds, and their conclusion was that you can't just call lab-grown diamonds cultured diamonds. You have to add a word that clarifies that lab-grown diamonds are from a lab and not from the earth to avoid confusion. Although one thing they did do there was uh, remove the word synthetic as one of their recommended words, so they no longer recommend that when you refer to a cultured diamond, you call it a synthetic cultured diamond which pleased many lab-grown diamond companies. But uh, as we mentioned before, they, they removed the word natural from their definition of, of a diamond, which is mostly of symbolic significance, because it doesn't actually change the fact that if you're marketing a lab-grown diamond, you have to call it a lab-grown or a synthetic or whatever it is. But it was still a big victory or seen as a big victory for the synthetics industry. And because they've been arguing, certainly for years, if not longer, the diamonds that they produce in a lab are diamonds just as much as a diamond that um, a mining company gets from the earth. Uh, they have the same chemical composition. And this is really a, a debate that we've been hearing in the industry for over a year, for two years, which is when you say diamond, when a consumer thinks of a diamond, are they thinking of a piece of carbon in a particular chemical form? Or are they thinking of something that's two billion years old and has a certain emotional connotation? And obviously natural diamonds have one of those. Uh, natural diamond does have the latter and, uh, and lab-grown diamonds don't have that. So I think this FTC ruling basically handed the victory in some ways to the lab-grown diamond sector in that uh, in that debate. Sonia, do you agree that this is a <coughs> is this a significant victory for the lab-grown sector? Is this is this any sort of setback at all for the uh, natural diamond industry? What kind of fallout has this had, or will this have? I think we discussed that on this podcast on this podcast before, and you know what was the impact of the FTC um, new terminology on the um, on the natural diamond industry or the lab grown diamond. But um, I think clarity in terminology is uh, is a good thing. Um, I think it's more interest. What is more interesting right now is I think Joshua has some some information about that. It's like the demand for lab grown diamonds. What's interesting is not just um, the terminology. It's like how does it actually impact on how the consumers are seeing a specific product outside of our industry because we know we can argue about about lexicon for a long time but i think it's just how is it perceived outside so avi how are they perceived outside of the industry do you have any insight or maybe uh well, well i think they're growing in in popularity and we wrote a response to two um, editorials that were written that really sort of took a shot at the natural diamond trade and at the ethical aspects of the trade and, and sort of really championed the synthetic diamonds as the more ethical alternative to it, which um, we spent some time sort of debunking those myths and, and really falsities that those editorials brought forward. But I agree with Sonia that um, it is definitely growing in acceptance and that's what Lightbox and uh, the FTC ruling 
did this year is really sort of mainstream them synthetics. And the Bain Report, which is an annual report about the industry, uh, was published um, last week. They see the the lab-grown market growing to between 5 and 10% of, of the natural market if the natural diamond market can can sort of up its marketing game to sort of pigeonhole the synthetics um, guys into a a lower value fashion jewelry um, niche and that's really the challenge of the industry um, moving forward is to to really have confidence in the product and um, and recognize um, that there are different products even if by strict um, FTC definition they're both diamonds they really represent two different uh, different things it's a matter of um, you know marketing to to make that clear to you in the minds of the consumer have you heard about the Rappaport Research Report? If you haven't, then you're missing out on the latest data report from the Rappaport team. Did you know that more than 80% of SI Clarity Diamonds in the 50-pointer category listed on RapNet in October 2017 sold within three months? Or that listings of three-carat diamonds jumped 30% on average across all categories in Antwerp this February? With the Rappaport Research Report, you can get valuable and actionable data to make smart, savvy investments and start increasing your profit margins. Don't get left behind. Subscribe to the Rappaport Research Report today to get business intelligence for the diamond industry. So one more theme, aside from synthetics and from the two-half year that we saw, was trade shows. Throughout you know, 2018, the subject of trade shows kept coming up, um, particularly where we were talking about Baselworld, where we're talking about Carrot Plus, you know, new shows and old shows and, and what they have to offer. And uh, I know you've been keeping a close eye on some of these things, Sonia. Maybe you can tell us what is the state of trade shows going into 2019? A lot of people are going to look at Baselworld as, uh, how do you say it, make or break? Do you say make or break? Is that the phrase in English, in proper English? Uh, <laughs> how, do you, how do you say it in French? I was I, actually I don't I, I, I was I was not even thinking. Maybe in Swiss German, <laughs> we'll try that. Uh, Joshua could help in that one. Um, they will watch very and no pun intended here. Very very carefully <laughs> what's happening in Basel. I have um, to wind up this thing. <laughs> it's all very complicated. <laughs> Um, they will. They will definitely watch what's happening in uh, in Basel World. Who's coming? We already know who's not coming. Twenty nineteen. But who's going to renew the footpath? Uh, how many visitors? I think that's going to be the most important thing for them. They haven't replaced um, the stand that Swatch has been vacating. Instead, they're doing like this nice area for journalists. I think with food and a press area. So. Journalists being notoriously freeloaders, they might give them really good reviews, but that's not enough to save a show. I think that's, that's a very interesting one to watch, um, joking aside, to see really if some of the big brands are going to to step away from it and do their own things. Uh, there's already a little show happening in um, in Geneva with the, the likes of Roberto Coin and a few other high-end brands that decided to do their own boutique show for, so, you know, Geneva different location I think you know that might be maybe the way forward uh, Garrett Plus unfortunately is not going to happen in 2019 as far as we we know so there's another show in Munich in Organta that some insiders have already told me is actually attracting a lot of people in terms of uh, booking 
attendants and the buyers. They're already talking about going to Munich instead of maybe going to Basel. Like, you know, it could be that now these smaller shows in Europe um, that were looked, you know, seen in the shadow of Basel World are actually going to to be more appealing for, for buyers and exhibitors alike. And, um, and of course, you know, we'll be looking at the second edition of Gem Genève in May um, in Geneva, high-end, color gemstones, diamonds, young designers to see if they do as well on the second year because the first year was a success, but you're only as good as the... The second year when, you know, the buyers and the traffic is as good as, you know, so so that'll be interesting for Europeans, you know, because then obviously you you blink and you're already in JCK. Exactly. It sounds good that there is a future over the horizon for the shows in Europe, but uh, we've also seen some issues going on with shows in Asia. And Avi, I know you, you attend those shows frequently. What's your take on the Asian show situation? And, and I mean, Hong Kong this year literally got blown out by a typhoon. Do you think that there's hope that it'll be you know better going forward? Are there other shows that are interesting on the horizon? Well, overall, I think both diamond companies and jewelry companies are just going to be much more selective in which shows they go to. A guy from from one of the major U.S. wholesale uh, jewelry design companies um, said to me, you know, firstly, he, he wouldn't have um, believed that, uh, you know, if you told him a year ago that Basel World would be affected in such a way, you know, he just wouldn't have believed it. But he added that it's really a sign of the way the market is moving. And really, you're still going to have the big American show I think, although I think this year as well at JCK, there were fewer exhibitors, certainly, that we noticed. But this coming year in 2019, they they had a new location and there's hopefully going to be sort of a revival of that. But um, the shows still serve a function, but it's the bigger shows that um, that I think there's just too many, there are too many other events going on that companies, um, A, they don't want to have that expense of going to every show. And they're going to pick and choose the the important ones. And so I think that um, the Vegas shows in in May and June and the two major Hong Kong shows, um, which give um, companies an insight into the the Asian markets, are going to maintain their importance. As far as Europe goes, I think what's also going to be interesting is to see what Swatch does. You know, if it has its own sort of event that um, whatever Baselworld gave Swatch um, how do they replace that if they need to? Is it just through their ongoing interaction with their retail partners? Are they going to have a big event that they do on their own that will invite their retailers to join them? I think that, like Sonia alluded to, that the, the European um, market is going to be sort of more these niche type of events that concentrate on a smaller groups and more intimate sort of uh, relationships, which was lacking. And that was the big um, critique of Baselworld, that it was too big and that there wasn't the sort of personal touch that uh, that the organizers brought to the party. So before we move on to prognostication about 2019, I was hoping maybe each of you would tell us what show you're most excited to go to uh, next year? Firstly, I think that's the second use of the word prognostication this year. <laughs> <laughs> we said we wouldn't use it. Was it one of the... <laughs> no, no, that that was... Uh, which one was the one that we wouldn't use? That was... Probably... I don't know, but I remember. Yeah. I remember. <laughs> All right, you know what? I promise in 2019 I will not use the word prognostication. <laughs> not until December 2019. <laughs> I'll probably forget by June. Um... So, Sonia, what show are you most interested in going to in 2019? Well, for personal reason, I won't be traveling until um, until May, for sure. 
So um, I'm looking at, you know, Geneva. Geneva is very family friendly. I'm looking at Vegas, uh, the new location, Couture. Hoping to go one day to Vincenzo. I mean, I'm just doing my wish list, like, you know, my holiday <laughs> <laughs> destinations. <laughs> um, talking actually small shows that are very successful. Vincenzo, um, north of Italy, a few editions, one in uh, Dubai as well. Uh, very successful, very targeted, good attendance, good seminars and, you know, and solid exhibitions. So solid, solid buying ground as well. So I would say, yeah, this one. And if Joshua doesn't go to London, maybe London in September. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so how about you, Avi? What show are you looking forward to attending in 2019? Yeah, I guess we got to preface this that it's a wish list. There's <laughs> 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 no guarantee anyone's going anywhere. Um, but uh, I love the Vegas shows. I get the most out of it in terms of understanding the market and, and seeing people in the industry that, uh, that I look forward to seeing. So I, I always enjoy um, Vegas. But they all bring a different personality. All the different shows have a different character to them, which is, which is kind of what makes the industry so interesting and fun, among other things. So, and Joshua, knowing that shows may or may not be in the future for 2019, what show would you like to attend? As Sonia mentioned, the London show would be good because, um, well, it would save Rappaport a bit of money because I can stay with my mother. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think, I think he's got one on you, um, Sonia. I have a few friends also who can host me, but... <laughs> If I go to London, can I stay with your mother as well? <laughs> um, I've always been a fan of Europe. I've always enjoyed traveling around Europe on trains. Um, so, um, <laughs> Sorry. I just imagine Joshua traveling from one small show to the next on a second class B. <laughs> uh, yep. Any show in Europe would be good. Particularly if it involves train stations. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that all sound, sounds very exciting. And, you know, we've started looking ahead. And um, I was hoping maybe you could tell us if you see, are there any trends you see coming up in 2019, Sonia? So I'm always interested in the luxury market, the high-end jewelry and um, what they're going to do and also the interaction with consumers. So what I read a lot about at the moment is um, artificial intelligence, how to improve the experience of the the consumers in stores or you know on the, on different platforms. So that's what I'm going to to be looking at if the diamond industry picks up on that and moves moves forward a bit because you know there's still I think a lot of um, companies that could get a bit more digital savvy and could you know have a, a different type of interaction. We're not even talking about AI, but just you know just improving actually your, your interface with uh, the consumer. So that's what I'm going to look at. And also the big luxury companies, what are they going to do? Gucci is launching a high jewelry line. You know, are they going to go more into this, uh, the high end or the fine jewelry? Where, where the market is going to go? So in Avi, what do you see coming down the pipeline in 2019? Well, on, on similar lines, uh, I think um, 2019 is going to be a year of technology for the industry. We saw quite a bit of that um, this year already with various blockchain programs coming on board, how you use technology to ensure traceability, to improve manufacturing efficiency, and certainly to improve the sales experience. And uh, I think that will just accelerate in, in 2019, which um, which might lead to... Um, 
further consolidation in the industry in, in a way because I think some some companies that are less um, geared for that will, will fall behind and probably fall out. But it'll certainly be a, a net positive for the industry because it's it's, it's lagging in that, in that area. And Josh, will, will you be looking towards any particular trends in 2019? Well, one thing about the diamond industry is it's very sensitive to political and economic conditions, um, as we've seen particularly with India and China this year. And there's quite a few aspects of or areas of, of political uncertainty that are brewing at the moment and that could become a cup of tea, I guess, in uh, in 2019. Um, did anyone get that? Uh, <laughs> I got it. <laughs> it took a little while. Firstly, in, in the US, there's President Trump under a lot of pressure, and, and in Europe, with uh, the UK due to leave the European Union at the end of March, and uh, continued Euro crisis uh, in other parts of, uh, of the continent, and continued difficulties in the Indian economy, plus the, the impact of the trade war between the US and China likely to continue. So I think our task now is to predict what will be the, the most significant geopolitical impact on the diamond industry next year. And this time next year, we might be able to answer that. So our editor-in-chief, Sonia Estra-Sultani. Sonia, it's been a pleasure having you here. And this is going to be your last uh, appearance on the Rappaport podcast for a few months, uh, I think, or very, very likely, though you are always welcome to join us if you uh, have the time. If you want a, a screaming baby in a studio. <laughs> I, I, don't think, the... <laughs> I don't think we could ask for anything else. Um, I, honestly, I think that would be a wonderful, uh, wonderful addition to our uh, recording experience. Just in case people don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm but, going away from Rappaport for three months on maternity leave. That's, that's what David is alluding to. And my screaming baby, we don't know yet. Maybe she'll be an angel. I'm sure she will be. And thank you so much. Your insight, is, as always, is invaluable, and we will miss you very much. Thanks. Thanks, guys. I will miss you as well. But three months go quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Avi, as always, you bring vast knowledge and experience. Thank you so much. Thanks, David. Um, and Joshua, your insight is always spot on, and you know nobody's got a wit like yours. Thank you for everything you've done. Thank you, David. And um, I think we would like to thank David for being such a fantastic host and giving you know, such a great energy to the podcast editions. So I'm looking forward to having more of this in 2019. Thank you very much. I'll second that. <laughs> I'll third that. <laughs> thank you all so much. It's really a pleasure. And thank you to everyone who is listening to the Rappaport Diamond podcast. If you're looking for more diamond industry content, check out the Rappaport Research Report, providing business intelligence for the diamond industry. Take a look at this month's Rappaport magazine for important advice on how you can improve your marketing push. On behalf of Avi, Sonia, Joshua, and the whole Rappaport team, have a very happy new year.